This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Door in the Wall by H.G. Wells. It's read by Jason Mills of LibriVox, and we'll be discussing it afterwards. It runs 40 minutes. The Door in the Wall by H.G. Wells One confidential evening, not three months ago, Lionel Wallace told me this story of the door in the wall, and at the time I thought that so far as he was concerned, it was a true story. He told it me with such a direct simplicity of conviction that I could not do otherwise than believe in him. But in the morning, in my own flat, I woke to a different atmosphere, and as I lay in bed and recalled the things he had told me, stripped of the glamour of his earnest slow voice, denuded of the focused shaded table light, the shadowy atmosphere that wrapped about him and the pleasant bright things, the dessert and glasses and napery of the dinner we had shared, making them for the time a bright little world quite cut off from everyday realities, I saw it all as frankly incredible. He was mystifying, I said, and then, how well he did it. It isn't quite the thing I should have expected him, of all people, to do well. Afterwards, as I sat up in bed and sipped my morning tea, I found myself trying to account for the flavour of reality that perplexed me in his impossible reminiscences, by supposing they did in some way suggest, present, convey, I hardly know which word to use, experiences it was otherwise impossible to tell. Well, I don't resort to that explanation now. I have got over my intervening doubts. I believe now, as I believed at the moment of telling, that Wallace did to the very best of his ability strip the truth of his secret for me. But whether he himself saw, or only thought he saw, whether he himself was the possessor of an inestimable privilege, or the victim of a fantastic dream, I cannot pretend to guess. Even the fact of his death, which ended my doubts forever, throw no light on that. That much the reader must judge for himself. I forget now what chance comment or criticism of mine moved so reticent a man to confide in me. He was, I think, defending himself against an imputation of slackness and unreliability I had made in relation to a great public movement in which he had disappointed me. But he plunged suddenly. I have, he said, a preoccupation. I know, he went on, after a pause that he devoted to the study of his cigar ash, I have been negligent. The fact is, it isn't a case of ghosts or apparitions, but it's an odd thing to tell of, Redmond. I am haunted. I am haunted by something that rather takes the light out of things, that fills me with longings. He paused, checked by that English shyness that so often overcomes us when we would speak of moving or grave or beautiful things. You were at St. Athelstan's all through, he said, and for a moment that seemed to me quite irrelevant. Well, and he paused. Then, very haltingly at first, but afterwards more easily, he began to tell of the thing that was hidden in his life, the haunting memory of a beauty and a happiness that filled his heart with insatiable longings, that made all the interests and spectacle of worldly life seem dull and tedious and vain to him. Now that I have the clue to it, the thing seems written visibly in his face. I have a photograph in which that look of detachment has been caught and intensified. 
It reminds me of what a woman once said of him, a woman who had loved him greatly. Suddenly, she said, the interest goes out of him. He forgets you. He doesn't care a rap for you, under his very nose. Yet the interest was not always out of him, and when he was holding his attention to a thing, Wallace could contrive to be an extremely successful man. His career, indeed, is set with successes. He left me behind him long ago. He soared up over my head and cut a figure in the world that I couldn't cut, anyhow. He was still a year short of forty, and they say now that he would have been in office, and very probably in the new cabinet, if he had lived. At school he always beat me without effort, as it were by nature. We were at school together at St. Athelstan's College in West Kensington, for almost all our school time. He came into the school as my co-equal, but he left far above me, in a blaze of scholarships and brilliant performance. Yet I think I made a fair average running, and it was at school I heard first of the door in the wall, that I was to hear of a second time only a month before his death. To him, at least, the door in the wall was a real door, leading through a real wall to immortal realities. Of that I am now quite assured. And it came into his life early, when he was a little fellow between five and six. I remember how, as he sat making his confession to me with a slow gravity, he reasoned and reckoned the date of it. There was, he said, a crimson Virginia creeper in it, all one bright uniform crimson, in a clear amber sunshine against a white wall. That came into the impression somehow, though I don't clearly remember how. And there were horse-chestnut leaves upon the clean pavement outside the green door. They were blotched yellow and green, you know, not brown nor dirty, so that they must have been new-fallen. I take it that means October. I look out for horse-chestnut leaves every year, and I ought to know. If I am right in that, I was about five years and four months old. He was, he said, rather a precocious little boy. He learned to talk at an abnormally early age, and he was so sane and old-fashioned, as people say, that he was permitted an amount of initiative that most children scarcely attain by seven or eight. His mother died when he was born, and he was under the less vigilant and authoritative care of a nursery governess. His father was a stern, preoccupied lawyer, who gave him little attention and expected great things of him. For all his brightness, he found life a little grey and dull, I think. And one day he wandered. He could not recall the particular neglect that enabled him to get away, nor the course he took among the West Kensington roads. All that had faded among the incurable blurs of memory. But the white wall and the green door stood out quite distinctly. As his memory of that remote childish experience ran, he did at the very first sight of that door experience a peculiar emotion, an attraction, a desire to get to the door and open it and walk in. And at the same time he had the clearest conviction that either it was unwise or it was wrong of him, he could not tell which, to yield to this attraction. He insisted upon it as a curious thing that he knew from the very beginning, unless memory has played him the queerest trick, that the door was unfastened, and that he could go in as he chose. I seemed to see the figure of that little boy, drawn and repelled, and it was very clear in his mind too, though why it should be so was never explained, that his father would be very angry if he went through that door. Wallace described all these moments of hesitation to me with the utmost particularity. He went right past the door, and then, with his hands in his pockets, and making an infantile attempt to whistle, strolled right along beyond the end of the wall. 
There he recalls a number of mean, dirty shops, and particularly that of a plumber and decorator, with a dusty disorder of earthenware pipes, sheet-lead ball taps, pattern books of wallpaper, and tins of enamel. He stood pretending to examine these things, and coveting, passionately desiring, the green door. Then, he said, he had a gust of emotion. He made a run for it. Lest hesitation should grip him again, he went plump with outstretched hand through the green door and let it slam behind him. And so, in a trice, he came into the garden that has haunted all his life. It was very difficult for Wallace to give me his full sense of that garden into which he came. There was something in the very air of it that exhilarated, that gave one a sense of lightness and good happening and well-being. There was something in the sight of it that made all its colour clean and perfect and subtly luminous. In the instant of coming into it, one was exquisitely glad, as only in rare moments and when one is young and joyful one can be glad in this world. And everything was beautiful there. Wallace mused before he went on telling me. "'You see,' he said, with the doubtful inflection of a man who pauses at incredible things, "'there were two great panthers there. "'Yes, spotted panthers. "'And I was not afraid. "'There was a long, wide path with marble-edged flower-borders on either side, "'and these two huge, velvety beasts were playing there with a ball. "'One looked up and came towards me, a little curious, as it seemed. "'It came right up to me, rubbed its soft round ear very gently against the small hand I held out, and purred. It was, I tell you, an enchanted garden. I know. And the size? Oh, it stretched far and wide, this way and that. I believe there were hills far away. Heaven knows where West Kensington had suddenly got to. And somehow it was just like coming home. You know, in the very moment the door swung to behind me, I forgot the road with its fallen chestnut leaves, its cabs and tradesmen's carts. I forgot the sort of gravitational pull back to the discipline and obedience of home. I forgot all hesitations and fear, forgot discretion, forgot all the intimate realities of this life. I became in a moment a very glad and wonder-happy little boy, in another world. It was a world with a different quality, a warmer, more penetrating and mellower light, with a faint clear gladness in its air, and wisps of sun-touched cloud in the blueness of its sky. And before me ran this long, wide path, invitingly, with weedless beds on either side, rich with untended flowers, and these two great panthers. I put my little hands fearlessly on their soft fur, and caressed their round ears and the sensitive corners under their ears, and played with them, and it was as though they welcomed me home. There was a keen sense of homecoming in my mind, and when presently a tall, fair girl appeared in the pathway, and came to meet me, smiling, and said, Well, to me, and lifted me, and kissed me, and put me down, and led me by the hand, there was no amazement, but only an impression of delightful rightness, of being reminded of happy things that had in some strange way been overlooked. There were broad steps, I remember, that came into view between spikes of delphinium, and up these we went to a great avenue between very old and shady dark trees. All down this avenue, you know, between the red-chapped stems, were marble seats of honour and statuary, and very tame and friendly white doves. And along this avenue my girl-friend led me, 
looking down. I recall the pleasant lines, the finely modelled chin of her sweet, kind face, asking me questions in a soft, agreeable voice, and telling me things, pleasant things I know, though what they were I was never able to recall. And presently a little capuchin monkey, very clean, with a fur of ruddy brown and kindly hazel eyes, came down a tree to us and ran beside me, looking up at me and grinning, and presently leapt to my shoulder. So we went on our way in great happiness. He paused. Go on, I said. I remember little things. We passed an old man musing among laurels, I remember, and a place gay with parakeets, and came through a broad shaded colonnade to a spacious cool palace, full of pleasant fountains, full of beautiful things, full of the quality and promise of heart's desire. And there were many things and many people, some that still seem to stand out clearly, and some that are a little vague. But all these people were beautiful and kind. In some way, I don't know how, it was conveyed to me that they all were kind to me, glad to have me there, and filling me with gladness by their gestures, by the touch of their hands, by the welcome and love in their eyes. Yes. He mused for a while. Playmates I found there. That was very much to me, because I was a lonely little boy. They played delightful games in a grass-covered court, where there was a sundial set about with flowers, and as one played one loved. But, it's odd, there's a gap in my memory. I don't remember the games we played. I never remembered. Afterwards, as a child, I spent long hours trying, even with tears, to recall the form of that happiness. I wanted to play it all over again, in my nursery, by myself. No, all I remember is the happiness, and two dear playfellows who were most with me. Then presently came a sombre, dark woman, with a grave, pale face and dreamy eyes, a sombre woman wearing a soft, long robe of pale purple, who carried a book and beckoned and took me aside with her into a gallery above a hall. Though my playmates were loath to have me go, and ceased their game and stood watching as I was carried away. "'Come back to us!' they cried. "'Come back to us soon!' I looked up at her face, but she heeded them not at all. Her face was very gentle and grave. She took me to a seat in the gallery, and I stood beside her, ready to look at her book as she opened it upon her knee. The pages fell open. She pointed, and I looked, marvelling, for in the living pages of that book I saw myself. It was a story about myself, and in it were all the things that had happened to me since ever I was born. It was wonderful to me because the pages of that book were not pictures, you understand, but realities. Wallace paused gravely, looking at me doubtfully. Go on, I said, I understand. They were realities. Yes, they must have been. People moved, and things came and went in them. My dear mother, whom I had near forgotten. Then my father, stern and upright. The servants, the nursery, all the familiar things of home then the front door and the busy streets, with traffic to and fro. I looked and marvelled, and looked half doubtfully again into the woman's face, and turned the pages over, skipping this and that, to see more of this book, and more. And so at last I came to myself, hovering and hesitating outside the green door, in the long white wall, and felt again the conflict and the fear. 
"'And next?' I cried, and would have turned on, but the cool hand of the grave woman delayed me. "'Next!' I insisted, and struggled gently with her hand, pulling up her fingers with all my childish strength, and as she yielded and the page came over, she bent down upon me like a shadow, and kissed my brow. But the page did not show the enchanted garden, nor the panthers, nor the girl who had led me by the hand, nor the playfellows who had been so loath to let me go. It showed a long grey street in West Kensington, on that chill hour of afternoon before the lamps are lit. And I was there, a wretched little figure, weeping aloud for all that I could do to restrain myself, and I was weeping because I could not return to my dear playfellows, who had called after me, Come back to us! Come back to us soon! I was there. This was no page in a book, but harsh reality. That enchanted place and the restraining hand of the grave mother at whose knee I stood had gone. Whither have they gone? He halted again, and remained for a time, staring into the fire. Oh, the wretchedness of that return, he murmured. Well, I said, after a minute or so. Poor little wretch I was, brought back to this grey world again. As I realised the fullness of what had happened to me, I gave way to quite ungovernable grief, and the shame and humiliation of that public weeping, and my disgraceful homecoming remain with me still. I see again the benevolent-looking old gentleman in gold spectacles, who stopped and spoke to me, prodding me first with his umbrella. "'Poor little chap,' said he. "'And all you're lost, then?' "'And me a London boy of five and more. "'And he must needs bring in a kindly young policeman and make a crowd of me, and so march me home. Sobbing, conspicuous, and frightened, I came from the enchanted garden to the steps of my father's house. That is as well as I can remember my vision of that garden, the garden that haunts me still. Of course I can convey nothing of that indescribable quality of translucent unreality, the difference from the common things of experience that hung about it all, but that, that is what happened. If it was a dream, I am sure it was a daytime and altogether extraordinary dream. Hmph! Naturally there followed a terrible questioning, by my aunt, my father, the nurse, the governess, everyone. I tried to tell them, and my father gave me my first thrashing for telling lies. When afterwards I tried to tell my aunt, she punished me again for my wicked persistence. Then, as I said, everyone was forbidden to listen to me to hear a word about it. Even my fairy-tale books were taken away from me for a time, because I was too imaginative. Eh? Yes, they did that. My father belonged to the old school, and my story was driven back upon myself. I whispered it to my pillow, my pillow that was often damp and salt to my whispering lips with childish tears. And I added always to my official and less fervent prayers this one heartfelt request. Please, God, I may dream of the garden. Oh, take me back to my garden. Take me back to my garden. I dreamt often of the garden. I may have added to it. I may have changed it. I do not know. All this, you understand, is an attempt to reconstruct from fragmentary memories a very early experience. Between that and the other consecutive memories of my boyhood, there is a gulf. A time came when it seemed impossible I should ever speak of that wonder-glimpse again. I asked an obvious question. No, he said. 
I don't remember that I ever attempted to find my way back to the garden in those early years. This seems odd to me now, but I think that very probably a closer watch was kept on my movements after this misadventure, to prevent my going astray. No, it wasn't until you knew me that I tried for the garden again, and I believe there was a period, incredible as it seems now, when I forgot the garden altogether. When I was about eight or nine, it may have been. Do you remember me as a kid at St. Athelstan's? Rather. I didn't show any signs, did I, in those days of having a secret dream. He looked up with a sudden smile. Did you ever play Northwest Passage with me? No, of course, you didn't come my way. It was the sort of game, he went on, that every imaginative child plays all day. The idea was the discovery of a Northwest Passage to school. The way to school was plain enough. The game consisted in finding somewhere that wasn't plain, starting off ten minutes early, in some almost hopeless direction, and working one's way round through unaccustomed streets to my goal. And one day I got entangled among some rather low-class streets on the other side of Campton Hill, and I began to think that for once the game would be against me, and that I should get to school late. I tried rather desperately a street that seemed a cul-de-sac, and found a passage at the end. I hurried through that with renewed hope. I shall do it yet, I said, and passed a row of frowsy little shops that were inexplicably familiar to me. And behold, there was my long white wall, and the green door that led to the enchanted garden. The thing whacked upon me suddenly. Then, after all, that garden, that wonderful garden, wasn't a dream. He paused. I suppose my second experience with the green door marks the world of difference there is between the busy life of a schoolboy and the infinite leisure of a child. Anyhow, this second time I didn't for a moment think of going in straight away. You see, for one thing my mind was full of the idea of getting to school in time, set on not breaking my record for punctuality. I must surely have felt some little desire at least to try the door. Yes, I must have felt that but I seem to remember the attraction of the door mainly as another obstacle to my overmastering determination to get to school. I was immediately interested by this discovery I had made. Of course, I went on with my mind full of it. But I went on. It didn't check me. I ran past, tugging out my watch, found I had ten minutes still to spare, and then I was going downhill into familiar surroundings. I got to school, breathless, it is true, and wet with perspiration, but in time— I can remember hanging up my coat and hat, went right by it and left it behind me. All day. He looked at me thoughtfully. Of course I didn't know then that it wouldn't always be there. Schoolboys have limited imaginations. I suppose I thought it was an awfully jolly thing to have it there, to know my way back to it. But there was the school tugging at me. I expect I was a good deal distraught and inattentive that morning recalling what I could of the beautiful strange people I should presently see again. Oddly enough, I had no doubt in my mind that they would be glad to see me. Yes, I must have thought of the garden that morning just as a jolly sort of place, to which one might resort in the interludes of a strenuous scholastic career. I didn't go that day at all. The next day was a half-holiday, and that may have weighed with me. Perhaps, too, my state of inattention brought down impositions upon me, and docked the margin of time necessary for the detour. I don't know. What I do know is that in the meantime the enchanted garden was so much upon my mind that I could not keep it to myself. I told... What was his name? A ferrety-looking youngster we used to call Squiff. 
"'Young Hopkins,' said I. "'Hopkins it was. "'I did not like telling him. "'I had a feeling that in some way it was against the rules to tell him. "'But I did. "'He was walking part of the way home with me. "'He was talkative, and if we had not talked about the enchanted garden, "'we should have talked of something else, "'and it was intolerable to me to think about any other subject. "'So I blabbed. "'Well, he told my secret. "'The next day, in the play interval, "'I found myself surrounded by half a dozen bigger boys.' half-teasing and wholly curious to hear more of the enchanted garden. There was that big Fawcett, you remember him? And Carnaby, and Morley Reynolds. You weren't there by any chance? No, I think I should have remembered if you were. A boy is a creature of odd feelings. I was, I really believe, in spite of my secret self-disgust, a little flattered to have the attention of these big fellows. I remember particularly a moment of pleasure caused by the praise of Crawshaw, "'You remember Crawshaw Major, the son of Crawshaw the composer? "'Who said it was the best lie he had ever heard. "'But at the same time there was a really painful undertone of shame "'at telling what I felt was indeed a sacred secret. "'That beast Fawcett made a joke about the girl in green. "'Wallace's voice sank with the keen memory of that shame. "'I pretended not to hear,' he said. "'Well, then Carnaby suddenly called me a young liar "'and disputed with me when I said the thing was true.' I said I knew where to find the green door, could lead them all there in ten minutes. Carnaby became outrageously virtuous, and said I'd have to, and bear out my words or suffer. Did you ever have Carnaby twist your arm? Then perhaps you'll understand how it went with me. I swore my story was true. There was nobody in the school then to save a chap from Carnaby, though Crawshaw put in a word or so. Carnaby had got his game. I grew excited and red-eared, and a little frightened. I behaved altogether like a silly little chap. And the outcome of it all was that instead of starting alone for my enchanted garden, I led the way presently, cheeks flushed, ears hot, eyes smarting, and my soul one burning misery and shame, for a party of six mocking, curious, and threatening schoolfellows. We never found the white wall and the green door. You mean, I mean I couldn't find it. I would have found it if I could and afterwards, when I could go alone, I couldn't find it. I never found it. I seem now to have been always looking for it through my schoolboy days. But I've never come upon it again. Did the fellows make it disagreeable? Beastly. Carnaby held a council over me for wanton lying. I remember how I sneaked home and upstairs to hide the marks of my blubbering. But when I cried myself to sleep at last, it wasn't for Carnaby, but for the garden. "'for the beautiful afternoon I had hoped for, "'for the sweet friendly women and the waiting playfellows, "'and the game I had hoped to learn again, "'that beautiful forgotten game. "'I believed firmly that if I had not told... "'I had bad times after that, "'crying at night and wool-gathering by day. "'For two terms I slackened and had bad reports. "'Do you remember? "'Of course you would. "'It was you, your beating me in mathematics, "'that brought me back to the grind again.' For a time my friend stared silently into the red heart of the fire. Then he said, I never saw it again, until I was seventeen. It leapt upon me for the third time, as I was driving to Paddington on my way to Oxford, and a scholarship. I had just one momentary glimpse. I was leaning over the apron of my hansom, smoking a cigarette, and no doubt thinking myself no end of a man of the world. And suddenly there was the door, the wall, the dear sense of unforgettable and still attainable things. 
we clattered by, I too taken by surprise to stop my cab until we were well past and round a corner. Then I had a queer moment, a double and divergent movement of my will. I tapped the little door in the roof of the cab, and brought my arm down to pull out my watch. "'Yes, sir,' said the cabman smartly. "'Er, uh, well, it's nothing,' I cried. "'My mistake. We haven't much time. Go on.' And he went on. I got my scholarship, and the night after I was told of that I sat over my fire in my little upper room, my study in my father's house, with his prayers, his rare prayers, and his sound counsels ringing in my ears, and I smoked my favourite pipe, the formidable bulldog of adolescence, and thought of that door in the long white wall. If I had stopped, I thought, I should have missed my scholarship. I should have missed Oxford, muddled all the fine career before me. I begin to see things better. I fell musing deeply, but I did not doubt then this career of mine was a thing that merited sacrifice. Those dear friends and that clear atmosphere seemed very sweet to me, very fine, but remote. My grip was fixing now upon the world. I saw another door opening, the door of my career. He stared again into the fire. Its red lights picked out a stubborn strength in his face for just one flickering moment, and then it vanished again. Well, he said, and sighed. I have served that career. I have done much work, much hard work. But I have dreamt of the enchanted garden a thousand dreams, and seen its door, or at least glimpsed its door, four times since then. Yes, four times. For a while this world was so bright and interesting, seemed so full of meaning and opportunity, that the half-effaced charm of the garden was by comparison gentle and remote. Who wants to pat panthers on the way to dinner with pretty women and distinguished men? I came down to London from Oxford, a man of bold promise that I have done something to redeem. Something. And yet there have been disappointments. Twice I have been in love. I will not dwell on that. But once, as I went to someone who, I know, doubted whether I dared to come, I took a shortcut at a venture through an unfrequented road near Earl's Court, and so happened on a white wall, and a familiar green door. Odd, said I to myself, but I thought this place was on Campton Hill. It's the place I never could find somehow, like counting Stonehenge, the place of that queer daydream of mine, and I went by it intent upon my purpose. It had no appeal to me that afternoon. I had just a moment's impulse to try the door. Three steps aside were needed at the most, though I was sure enough in my heart that it would open to me. And then I thought that doing so might delay me on the way to that appointment in which I thought my honour was involved. Afterwards I was sorry for my punctuality. I might at least have peeped in, I thought, and waved a hand to those panthers. But I knew enough by this time not to seek again belatedly that which is not found by seeking. Yes, that time made me very sorry. Years of hard work after that, and never a sight of the door. It's only recently it has come back to me. With it there has come a sense as though some thin tarnish had spread itself over my world. I began to think of it as a sorrowful and bitter thing that I should never see that door again. Perhaps I was suffering a little from overwork. Perhaps it was what I've heard spoken of as the feeling of forty. I don't know. 
but certainly the keen brightness that makes effort easy has gone out of things recently, and that just at a time with all these new political developments when I ought to be working. Odd, isn't it? But I do begin to find life toilsome. It's rewards as I come near them. Cheap. I began a little while ago to want the garden quite badly. Yes. And I've seen it three times. The garden? No, the door. And I haven't gone in. He leaned over the table to me, with an enormous sorrow in his voice as he spoke. Thrice I have had my chance. Thrice! If ever that door offers itself to me again, I swore, I will go in out of this dust and heat, out of this dry glitter of vanity, out of these toilsome futilities. I will go and never return. This time I will stay. I swore it, and when the time came, I didn't go. Three times in one year have I passed that door and failed to enter. Three times in the last year. The first time was on the night of the snatched divisions on the tenants' redemption bill, on which the government was saved by a majority of three. You remember? No one on our side, perhaps very few on the opposite side, expected the end that night. Then the debate collapsed like eggshells. I and Hotchkiss were dining with his cousin at Brentford. We were both unpaired, and we were called up by telephone, and set off at once in his cousin's motor. We got in barely in time, and on the way we passed my wall and door, livid in the moonlight, blotched with hot yellow as the glare of our lamps lit it, but unmistakable. "'My God!' cried I. "'What?' said Hotchkiss. "'Nothing,' I answered, and the moment passed. "'I've made a great sacrifice,' I told the whip as I got in. "'They all have,' he said, and hurried by. "'I do not see how I could have done otherwise, then. "'And the next occurrence was as I rushed to my father's bedside "'to bid that stern old man farewell. "'Then, too, the claims of life were imperative. "'But the third time was different. "'It happened a week ago. "'It fills me with hot remorse to recall it. "'I was with Gurkha and Ralph's. "'It's no secret now, you know, that I've had my talk with Gurkha.' We had been dining at Frobisher's, and the talk had become intimate between us. The question of my place in the reconstructed ministry lay always just over the boundary of the discussion. Yes, yes, that's all settled. It needn't be talked about yet, but there's no reason to keep a secret from you. Yes, thanks, thanks, but let me tell you my story. Then, on that night, things were very much in the air. My position was a very delicate one. I was keenly anxious to get some definite word from Gurkha, but was hampered by Ralph's presence. I was using the best power of my brain to keep that light and careless talk not too obviously directed to the point that concerns me. I had to. Ralph's behaviour since has more than justified my caution. Ralph's, I knew, would leave us beyond the Kensington High Street, and then I could surprise Gurkha by a sudden frankness. One has sometimes to resort to these little devices. And then it was that in the margin of my field of vision... I became aware once more of the white wall, the green door before us, down the road. We passed it, talking. I passed it. I can still see the shadow of Gurkha's marked profile, his opera hat tilted forward over his prominent nose, the many folds of his neck wrap going before my shadow and Ralph's, as we sauntered past. I passed within twenty inches of the door. If I say good night to them and go in, I asked myself, what will happen? And I was all a tingle for that word with Gurkha. 
I could not answer that question in the tangle of my other problems. They will think me mad, I thought. And suppose I vanish now. Amazing disappearance of a prominent politician. That weighed with me. A thousand inconceivably petty worldlinesses weighed with me in that crisis. Then he turned on me with a sorrowful smile, and, speaking slowly, Here I am, he said. Here I am, he repeated, and my chance has gone from me. Three times in one year the door has been offered me. The door that goes into peace, into delight, into a beauty beyond dreaming, a kindness no man on earth can know. And I have rejected it, Redmond, and it has gone. How do you know? I know. I know. I am left now to work it out, to stick to the tasks that held me so strongly when my moments came. You say, I have success. This vulgar, tawdry, irksome, envied thing. I have it. He had a walnut in his big hand. If that was my success, he said, and crushed it, and held it out for me to see. Let me tell you something, Redmond. This loss is destroying me. For two months, for ten weeks nearly now, I have done no work at all, except the most necessary and urgent duties. My soul is full of inappeasable regrets. At nights, when it is less likely I shall be recognised, I go out. I wonder. Yes. I wonder what people would think of that if they knew. A cabinet minister, the responsible head of that most vital of all departments, wandering alone, grieving, sometimes near audibly lamenting, for a door, for a garden. I can see now his rather pallid face, and the unfamiliar sombre fire that had come into his eyes. I see him very vividly tonight. I sit recalling his words, his tones, and last evening's Westminster Gazette still lies on my sofa, containing the notice of his death. At lunch today the club was busy with him and the strange riddle of his fate. They found his body very early yesterday morning, in a deep excavation near East Kensington Station. It is one of two shafts that have been made in connection with an extension of the railway southward. It is protected from the intrusion of the public by a hoarding upon the high road, in which a small doorway has been cut for the convenience of some of the workmen who live in that direction. The doorway was left unfastened, through a misunderstanding between two gangers, and through it he made his way. My mind is darkened with questions and riddles. It would seem he walked all the way from the house that night. He has frequently walked home during the past session. And so it is, I figure, his dark form coming along the late and empty streets, wrapped up, intent. And then did the pale electric lights near the station cheat the rough planking into a semblance of white? Did that fatal, unfastened door awaken some memory? Was there, after all, ever any green door in the wall at all? I do not know. I have told his story as he told it to me. There are times when I believe that Wallace was no more than the victim of the coincidence between a rare but not unprecedented type of hallucination and a careless trap. But that indeed is not my profoundest belief. You may think me superstitious, if you will, and foolish, but indeed I am more than half convinced that he had, in truth, an abnormal gift and a sense, something, I know not what, that in the guise of wall and door offered him an outlet, a secret and peculiar passage of escape into another and altogether more beautiful world. 
At any rate, you will say, it betrayed him in the end. But did it betray him? There you touch the inmost mystery of these dreamers, these men of vision and imagination. We see our world fair and common, the hoarding and the pit. By our daylight standard, he walked out of security into darkness, danger, and death. But did he see like that? Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Mirko. And I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to be talking about The Door in the Wall by H.G. Wells. It's a story from 1906. A lot of people think it's from 1911 online, but actually that's, or I think maybe 1911 or 1910 when it was put in a book, but it was first published in a newspaper, I think, 1906. And since then it's been republished many times, uh, but I've not heard of it very often other than it just, it is a story. Um, but Marco, you chose this. Uh, why did you choose it and... Uh, how did you come to choose it? Yeah, this is um, interesting. Before Christmas, uh, last year, a colleague showed me a book by Audrey Niffenegger. You probably know her from The Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And this book is called The Night Book Mobile. And right. Yeah. And my, my colleague is a um, part-time librarian at a public library in our town. And she collects everything that's, uh, that is about librarians and uh, libraries for for the kids and she showed me this book but I wasn't first interested in because um, well I'm not familiar to the work of Audrey Niffenegger but it's in a um, in a graphic novel style and I read the story and found it very interesting Um, and um, it says in the blurb that it was inspired by H.G. Wells The Door in the Wall and then I, I just read Door in the Wall and was reminded to another story by Astrid Lindgren. You know, probably know her, very famous child book author. And I thought it was interesting that this, this particular subject of the door in the wall that leads to another world is appearing a lot in literature. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a weird subject. So I thought it was very interesting to discuss this story. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think it is a it is a very weird subject. Um, I, I hadn't read the story, I guess, until yeah, like just very recently. Jim, is this your first reading of it? Uh, no, I read it quite a few years ago when I picked up um, a short paperback volume of uh, H.G. Wells short stories that had been uh, issued to tie in with the rather crappy film uh, Kingdom of the Ants which is based on another of his short stories, and um, this one happened to be in there, along with um, other ones like The Flowering of the Strange Orchid and The Sea Raiders and a lot of his other sort of more weird and um, horror-themed stories. Yeah, it, that, that, uh, the, the ants, Kingdom of the Ants story is a very interesting story as well. It's, all of these... What's, what's so interesting, I think, about Wells' stories is that he he basically doesn't ever sort of fall into one little focused area. He he's because he's a pioneer in in so many stories. Uh he just says, "Oh, look, this area is totally unexplored. I'll write a story there." And then he changes complete direction and writes a story totally unexplored in another area. And and often they are more horror or 
thriller or fantasy or this one's almost a fairy tale in a certain sense and and of course all the science fiction so um i was i was surprised to read that this is also one of was one of his most popular stories when he was uh a young man um because it there's hasn't been a movie version uh, at least not the ones available i think one came out in the 50s but it's not it, maybe it was a tv movie or something it's not online or anything nobody knows about it yes so, I, I looked for it and couldn't find it anywhere so <laughs> yeah it, i i dug pretty deep and I, I didn't come up with much it's on imdb but it's not a complete listing or anything um, I guess one of the problems with doing it would have been uh, getting two panthers to, <laughs> or sorry, leopards to um, uh, not bite a small five-year-old boy. <laughs> well, Use him as a plaything instead of uh, play with him. <laughs> yeah, today they, they'll do it with CGI, I guess. Yeah, today it would be much easier. Yeah, but even so, I I'm not sure I'm not sure how well. Um, it's very a mysterious story to me. I I spent many rereadings trying to figure out what symbolism means what exactly. I think it's very very open, but all the readings of you know what people think it means that I could find, they all had different opinions than I I do. They they seem to think it was a lot different than I do. So I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about what's going on and what the symbolism means if there is symbolism or what's going on in there. Well, so when I, I re- you know, read it, I've always sort of took it as kind of, when I first read it, I thought it was kind of like one of these premonition stories, you know, the, um, the, the garden he finds is kind of like, like an afterlife. And mm-hmm. it's like, um, it's, it's a story about mm-hmm. destiny and doom. Um, but when I've read it, since I've been older, I, I think it, it's pointing to something very different. I mean, um, uh, I've read a couple of essays online, one which was absolutely boneheadedly awful, yeah. I must say, um, which tried to explain away the dawn, saying, well, obviously he was a small child, and the panthers would have been cats, and the monkey was a squirrel, <laughs> and the book she showed him with pictures of mood was obviously early cinema. And it's like, no, 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 stop. You don't have to explain it. It's a story. We don't need skepticism here. You know, knock it off. Yeah. Um, you know, Although I, I, think, I think we're allowed to uh, be like his parents, right? His, or his, ma- uh, his, his dad, I should say. Well, he, even the narrator, you know, at first yeah. he's spellbound, then the morning after he's like, was he pulling my leg? What was that about? Um, that can't be real, you know. Um, but you know, my feeling is, it is kind of, it's, it's symbolic of the garden is something that was missing in his life. Um, and that it's maybe not quite an allegory or a parable but it seems to be to me it seems to be well saying that there's more than just the hard-headed practicalities of working hard and having a career and if you don't have this kind of artistic spiritual um, sentimental even sort of aspect to your life your your life will be um, as the narrator put it tarnished and grey and uh, these these longings for that will suck the light out of everything else. 
I think that's uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Uh, you know what I, I think is interesting is it it is so we don't really have a word for this. Um, you know, usually we have some way of describing it. It's not a fairy tale. It's not exactly a parable, at least not in an obvious way. It's not a strict fantasy. Uh, it's very hard to sort of pin down what exactly is going on. But certainly if you read it as a child, you're going to think about it differently, I think, like you were saying, than reading it as an adult. Mm. As an adult, it seems to me a lot about kind of uh, nostalgia, right? Uh, yeah, a, a yeah. Remembering of a good period. And I was thinking, well, do I have a green door in my life that I can go behind and I can remember and say I want to get back to where I was in that wonderful time and I do I have several of them um and 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 as a symbol for that you know it's about making choices I guess uh in your own life as to what you you know whether you want to work 8 hours a day and uh uh have 2 days off on the weekend um or if you want to do something else but yeah I think there's something special going on in there Well I think it's all Oh sorry well, I think it's also it's nostalgia, but it's also um, something that a friend of mine called of a nostalgia, because he has a longing for the times he didn't go through the door and what mm-hmm. could have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to. I've, I read this story twice in the last week. I mean, I read it last weekend and I read it again today. Um, but interesting. In between, then yesterday, I went to. Um, a reunion, and I saw people I'd not seen since I was a child. It was like, you know, a get-together for a, a musical sort of group I was part of, my parents had been part of, and um, we'd moved away. And So, you know, I saw, you know, people I'd grown up with up to the age of 10 and not seen since. And that brought back a lot of kind of, you know, kind of the nostalgia green door, happy memories. <laughs> but it's also kind of left me a lot of wonderings of if we hadn't moved away and I'd stayed growing up with those folks what would have happened you know because quite a few of them of all my chums ended up getting married to each other and i was there kind of you know i could be married to one of these these ladies oh. now you know what i mean it's kind of got this strange i wouldn't say as far as a longing but i sort of reading the story oh, yeah. again today i could understand that kind of nostalgia that longing for things that could have been um the sort of parallel alternative you know if you'd gone through the door earlier what would have happened? What would he have found? Yes, yeah, in the door. Um, and the wall appears at critical moments in his life when he has to make a choice. Yeah. When he has to, when he has to choose whether he goes to Northwest Passage when he plays this Northwest Passage game, whether he goes to school and comes uh, at the right time, or he comes late, or he stays in the garden. And then later, when he sees the door, he also has to make decisions of in his career and very yes, important yes. decisions not not only for him but for other people not just his career though i think there's one time he's going to meet a, a lady yes it's but, life it's like sort of critical life choices uh situations yeah, and, this, this would, sorry whatever he does would influence his, his life um either on the one point that he goes into the garden and his life probably ends or anything happens what he does not know and, and the other thing is when he stays in the real world and does not enter the garden um, his choice is very uh, foreseeable what's going to happen to him with him right right yeah so when, when i i read through this story 
at least three or four times all the way through and then bits over and over again this week. And some of the things that uh, I noticed, one of, one of the things is how front-loaded it is about the garden. And then the the majority of the story is talking about trying to get back there mm. and trying to get back and get back and sort of his, we see the pr- progress of his life um, and how the, how the response to this unique situation happened and and then the the resolution but there's so much happening in that little section that has uh the 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 you know the brief interlude in the garden um that i i missed it most of the time i'm i'm reading through it i'd, I'd be reading through it and i said i'm missing something i've got to go back and read that again because it's so jam-packed with i think symbolic sort of stuff that sort of almost eluding me in it's like well i sort of get that and okay what is this place because it's it's i was thinking is it the garden of eden well it's not exactly there's no there's no uh fruit tree right there's no snake in the grass or anything so that's not it but i i wanted to to, uh, i made a list of all the things that sort of struck me when when we do get that little scene so uh there's a he goes through the door and he sees uh untended flowers but there's no weeds so <laughs> there's people who are not taking care of things but it's growing beautifully like a garden so we're not in reality right <laughs> because hmm. if you see a beautiful garden there's somebody working hard to make it look like that i think at least if it's a garden <laughs> of the kind we uh we sort of are imagining in this situation. Um, there's spikes of delphinium flowers. Those are blue flowers. That makes sense. Red steps. Um, a lot of marble. All the buildings are marble. There's a sundial, a fountain. Um, there's hills in the distance, which makes it very clear that this is not, uh, this is supposed to be set in London, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's obviously not London. If, if, if this garden extends to hills in the distance, um, there's uh, parakeets, and of course there's the the two spotted panthers, um, who are playing with a ball, which I thought was kind of interesting. That they they were the playmates, right, um, for him, and he was a lonely little boy. So I, was the, those other children, and I, I was thinking, oh, well, is this a situation where, where we we've got like Odysseus? Um, and Circe, uh, Circe, uh, turns, uh, men into animals. And on Circe's island, there's a, uh, pair of lions that are tame. Everything there is tame. There's also a capuchin monkey, um, that is quote unquote very clean. Maybe that's so his mom wouldn't get upset that he was playing with a monkey, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But um there's a bunch of there's a a bunch of other things, you know, trees and uh, the description of the directions are, you know, to the not to the west and to the east, but this way and that way. Sort of like a child would say. But the one thing that made me most interested beyond the two uh females who are there, there's the, there's a there's a uh, little girl who is described as fair. His, her first words to him 
are well? Question mark. Um, like she's just seen him step out and step back in to answer a question about what's going on in the outside world or something, right? She's she's like she knows him from before, which is very interesting because this is you know the first time he's been there we think, but she says well and she kisses him, um, and then she takes him uh, up the up the path, and on the way up the path or just past the steps, they pass an old quote unquote old man musing among laurels, and I was thinking. Is that him in later life? Because remember what his job is. He's a he's a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to be a cabinet minister, or he is a cabinet minister, uh, or about to be named a cabinet minister. I'm not sure. It's sort of a little unclear. He's he's anyways he's an up and comer politician, um, and yet he doesn't die as an old man, right? When he is killed in that. Um, <laughs> In that, uh, shaft, I guess, when he, at the end of the story, he doesn't die as an old man. So I wasn't sure what's going on there. But I, I just thought it was interesting that it was among laurels that he was musing. Um, and then of course there's the, the dark woman, uh, with the book. And that I think many great essays could be written on what's going on there mm. because the way it ends is fascinating. Oh yes. What did you guys think about, the the images we see in in the the things we see or the realities and quote unquote we see in the uh, garden. I found them very mysterious. Yes, I was wondering how how familiar H.G. Wells was to the interpretation of dreams by Sigmund Freud or by any uh, dream like uh, hmm. you know there the, the could be Christian symbols there could be. Uh, symbols from uh, interpretation of the dreams. Many things seem to be uh, an old tradition like um, symbolism, but they don't connect to each other. They, yeah. they, they scammed on, on each other, And but the most interesting symbol was the book, I think. Yeah, I the think book, the book. His mother was, his probably mother was reading to him. Well, in, in a certain sense, she is his mother, I think. Yeah. And there is a similarity to Astrid Lindgren um, in The Red Bird, that's the English name of the book, um, two children enter a garden and there's the mother of all childs. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's mother of all childs. And the book appears in Lorraine, uh, Audrey Niffenegger's um, The Nightbook Mobile. Um, if I can sum it up, just short... Uh, a woman, a very young woman, goes out onto the street in the night and there's a bus bus waiting. And the bus driver is a librarian and the bus is a library with few books in there. And all the books... Can we call that a bookmobile? A bookmobile, yes. <laughs> Sorry? It's called a bookmobile. It's called That's a bookmobile. Yes. I, I don't know if they have them, but we used to have them around. Uh, we, we don't have them anymore. <laughs> Sad. But the books that are standing on the shelves are uh, very fam- familiar to her and she finds out that the librarian looks after the books she read in her life mm. and then he he tells her that uh, it's her personal um, library 
and he's looking after them and she decides to become a librarian in real life too and um goes story goes on she meets the book mobile at certain points in her life and uh she reads more and more and more so the library get bigger and bigger and bigger and then she finally uh commits suicide to become a night um a nightbook mobile librarian for some other person too so that's basically yeah, something to tie into suicide as well i yeah. i think that's one way to read this story is 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 that it's a longing for death for 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 at least some kind of change well but i i mean what happens to them in the end he he's dead right he's dead uh, he, he goes he goes through the false door right well yes but was it a false door maybe i mean that's yeah. th- that's what we're left with wondering is whether he's in the garden or and and got there via seems, suicide and all those yeah, Pat, those times he chose not to kill himself were, you know, critical times in his life when the world drew him away from the door. That's interesting. It, it's kind of a, a sort of a depressing way of looking at, it, but it, it sort of makes you also wonder what, what that, how that would work if, if how did he get there in the first place? What, how is this child almost killed that he can see the garden, sort of thing? You know, is, is that a uh, near death experience or what? It, it would explain why he's crying in the street when a London London uh, cop has to take him home. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not. I'm not wedded to that that <laughs> interpretation. Well, the question is: is if he'd gone through the door at any other occasion, would he have died? Yeah. Um, yes. We, you know, that's that's an open question. It's kind of, we don't have enough evidence in the story to say one way or the other. Um, I mean. My personal sort of gut feeling is is kind of um the book is the book of his life, it's the book of his days and it is mm-hmm. kind of the grave mother is actually destiny or fate, the weaver at the loom. Mm-hmm. Um and this is why when he looks at the book he doesn't see himself in the garden because it's the book of his life his on the life. mortal plane yeah. and so it doesn't show up in the book in the garden. Um and so, you know, my sort of feeling sort of is, is that, you know, maybe if he'd gone through at another time, he could have, um, you know, had another magical experience, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you can read this so many different ways, it's kind of... What I was, what I was thinking for is um, another door, another port- portal is um, uh, at Narnia. You remember? Yes, Narnia is a very good example yeah. of, of something so, that seems like this, right? Yeah, this interesting is I get another example like the tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. You know, this yes, one where uh, he discovers this, uh, this this tomb, and all the stories have in common that when the protagonists are small children or just teenagers, they see the door for the first time. Hmm. Like in Narnia, and in the tomb, and right here, and so on. Um, this is this is very interesting. This appears again and again that uh, only kids and teenagers can see the door, and it goes on with their life. It always appears. And the last part of Narnia, I guess, was when they went there for the last time and would never return. Right? Mm. They have to fulfill a certain task, and so 
we have the opposite thing here uh, with the HG Wells stories. He has to fulfill a certain task in real life, and the door, the green door, offers him an alternative. But he chooses the real tasks and the real uh, things. So this is the the other way yeah. around, like Anania. I think I think that's a very good reading. There's a, there's a couple other uh, ways I would I would also point to other materials. So one of the things that um, it kind of reminded me of was remember the garden sort of like world that that the time traveler finds when he goes to the future of um, of Wina in the mm-hmm. the time machine. That place is a, uh, it's full of childlike humans, right? They're all uh, fully grown, I guess. Uh, but they're pretty dumb. (laughs) (laughs) They are, uh, they can't make anything. They can only, you know, enjoy the fruit. They enjoy the sun. They enjoy playing. But when one of them falls in the water, none of the other ones know what to do. And when one of the, uh when when the doors uh, of that place open up um the morlocks come out and eat them right so we don't, there's no sense of of horror uh with this this um the door in the wall but there certainly is a sense of you know this idyllic garden is not a place of of struggle it's a place of um Peace and it, it, it is more like Eden or heaven than uh, the the false Eden or heaven of of the time machine. I think I think that there, there's some connection to uh, Lionel Wallace. That's our main character, our our guy. We're we're talking about had this experience. He he's a politician, and the way the story starts is our our narrator Redmond, he says, um, I don't know how it came about exactly, but I had, I had told him how disappointed I was with a certain public uh, movement to which my friend was uh, not paying attention or not, I guess, voting on in this case. Um, so I was thinking, you know, it's at, at the time, maybe it's women's voting rights or, you know, something very progressive, right? And and then the, this whole explanation as to why he <laughs> explaining excusing his his lack of interest in that subject is he says I I was distracted I've been distracted my whole life by this thing and and so much of the story is not about what happens in the garden but wanting to get back there in comparison to his life as a politician and. And in advancing his own career, but also a career that is about uh, creating a good society, I guess, in England, right? Making the world, the real world, a better place and doing all the things that are associated with that, like trying to, you know, insinuate yourself into government by uh, walking with the influential members of parliament, right? And, uh, and, and uh, making dates with women who you might want to marry. You can't just break those and go off and play. Um, it's sort of, I think, one way of reading it is the door in the wall is like 
an escapist life versus a um versus a an active participation in the society and i i think if that's true i'm i i'm like always doing that myself i spend a lot of time reading um about worlds that don't exist but i always try and say how does this apply to the real world and i think that tension is really interesting because of who wells was right he's a uh a writer about you know fantasies but also about science fiction and about history and he was very much engaged with the real world in his politics he was always uh advocating some position um as well as being a writer so that tension between the two ways of living i think is interesting yeah this um, across a quite f- sorry go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is like Wallace sacrifices his life to yeah in, in a I, very altruistic way. And to, but he only sacrifices it to a certain point, right? If he had lived, he's only he's I think not yet forty, right? Is the description of his life? Um, maybe he would have become prime minister or something, right? Some uh, position where he could uh, be, you know, even more influential than he was. And I mean, it's so much of the story is about, you know, him having to show up in Parliament and make a vote or to progress some aspect of the real world of his life that it 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 can't be just, you know, an accident that he's a politician, I think. And and because of that, I I thought it was. I was trying to read more into it, but I'm not sure how how much I can draw out more than that. Well, it's one of the things is is um, Wallace has no inkling that when he does step through the door, he's going to die. No, um, you know that's that's the loaded sort of deal of the door, isn't it? <laughs> that's the catch of that he goes through it, and in reality, he winds up dead. And you know, Wells ends with, well, was it just? a trick of his psychology that, you know, conspired against him to thinking he saw this door he'd hallucinated in the past, which led to his accidental death, or was it a case that he had some sort of gift that he could perceive this portal to another reality? And But even if he did, he, either or way, he had no, re- no inkling that uh, it would be his doom. Yeah. The, the fact that the door moves, it sort of mm-hmm. is following him, Seems to me, you know, it's uh, the the other Lovecraft story that this reminded me of was uh, the music of Eric Zahn. Yes, um, and I think there's another one that's similar like that. Where, uh, yeah, it's it, I think it's um, one we've done, Picton's model, where there's all sort of a lost street you can't mm-hmm. find your way back to again, right? Yes. Um, um, continue. There's uh, another interesting story by. Lord Dunsany, mm-hmm. you say, um, the window to another world. I don't know what the correct English title is, but um, one person owns a, a picture, I guess, and in this picture he can observe another world. This is hmm. also very interesting. Well, there, there's there's a, a well story like that as well, the Crystal Egg, yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. in that case it's Mars. <laughs> 
Um, and some people think that that's a, uh, a, con- a connected story to um, the War of the Worlds, although I'm not so sure about that. Looking at the comparing the two, they don't look exactly the same to me. But um, what, one of the th- one of the things I mentioned before the podcast was uh, I got one of my students to look at this story with me. And uh, what struck him, I thought, was really interesting. I said, so what do you, what do you know about panthers, I said. <laughs> um, and, and he says, oh, oh, they're the symbol of Dionysus. And I'm like, what? Okay, I, I didn't. I guess I've seen pictures of Dionysus with a panther. But a spotted panther is, is Dionysus' symbol. And I thought that was interesting because <clears throat> um, it's supposed to represent Dionysus in a certain way, who uh, is the god of wine and um, other things. But one of the things about Dionysus is sometimes he's active and sometimes he's passive. Sometimes he's uh, he's a dichotomous god. He's not only one thing, right? He's sort of the opposite of Apollo. Uh, yeah, right. This this comes to mind. I, it just was when you said Dionysus, I was thinking about Friedrich Nietzsche, where you say oh, yeah. Apollo and Dionysus. That's right. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and one one of the things I was reading about um, that was this quote, which I found, which is, um, the panther symbolizes the overcoming of earthly desires. And I thought, well, that's interesting because in a sense, uh, which is which is the overcoming here? Because he, when he visits that world, that other world, uh, there's no conflict there. The only conflict is, you know, we'll make sure you come back and play after you uh, you go talk to the lady with the book, right? That's all the kids want him to do. That's the entire conflict. So there's in that world there's no um there's no want and in that sense is that a place of of earthly desires or is it more like an eden where everything is provided and or even almost like the the false eden of uh of the time machine but if the, if you look at the the other way in his life he wants recognition he wants dinners with great men. He wants uh, beautiful ladies. Right? Those are the things that he gets in his life of of the real world, and that that also fits in with H.G. Wells. Apparently, he was a guy who couldn't couldn't stop uh, collecting women for his <laughs> personal uh, personal interests. He was a very big fan of of females. Um, that, that fits also with, you know, his, you know, interest in literature, I think is not exactly, there's, there's a kind of people are, they're either spend all their time reading or they spend all their time in the world. And there's sort of the, the people who, who are in those two different camps, uh, there is a, a dichotomy between them. And I thought this was maybe a symbolic story for for Wells himself in that sense. I don't know. It's very interesting. There's much material in this small story, right? 
Mm-hmm. You can just well, it's it's quite long for for how how little is spent in the. I mean, it's it's a relatively long story, but um, most of it is not spent in the garden itself, right? It's very little that's there. It's all about wanting to get back there. I find it interesting that the um the incidence of him seeing the door increases towards the end. It's true. That he says he sees it three times in the last year. And it's almost like it's kind of, you know, come in, Mr. Wallace, your time is up. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I know I've read some bits and bobs online uh, where various critics have interpreted it as um, Wells making a point that, you know, one should stick with science and reality and not give way to sensation yeah. and illusion. And... Um, I don't think that's what he's saying at all in this. Um, yeah, it's a yeah. tension between them, but not a stick with it. It's certainly mm. not a stick with it sort of. It's not one thing for sure. No, I don't think he comes down either side. I think, as he says at the beginning, the reader must judge for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was. I think he was raising questions rather than telling you one way or the other. <laughs> you, maybe, maybe the. Um, the ambiguity of this story is why it was so popular at the time. Uh, the parents could read it to their kids, and the kids see it as one thing. <laughs> ask about the Panthers a lot while the parents are reading the last three quarters of the story, um, or, or you know, if it's just popular with adults, is it uh, is it about making making decisions and and having a sort of a magical experience that there is something about childhood that you you know there are there is a green door i think Mm. at least for me there is at least one sort of situation where you you know so that that was the that was the perfect place or the perfect time or the perfect summer yeah i mean that's all ray bradbury's writing is all about right (laughs) well very much so yeah yeah uh i don't know it's one that is is just a fascinating work because it works on different levels you can read it in different ways I mean I think kind of his other world to me it seems to speak of kind of like the idealized sort of fantasy landscapes that were popular in like pre-Raphaelite paintings it seems Mm to sort of it seems to reek of that as it were of, um, of that kind of world that's kind of, it's a bit Garden of Eden, but it's also very classical as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that he, when he's in the garden, he says he sees many things, something's very clear and something's indistinct. Mm-hmm. And you get the, uh, you know, with the people who are all very kind, and but some are very vivid and others are more vague, and I have the imp- my personal impression is that the ones he sees very clearly are the permanent residents. And the rest are people who are just like he is visiting. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, uh, you know, there's something uh, that w- I don't think we've mentioned it so far. I want to see if I can find it. Um, there's something in the. Let's see if I can find the spot. When he's in the garden and he's reading the, he's in the gallery actually with the the somber woman. A somber, dark woman. He turns the that last page after she, you know, her hand is trying to hold it from him mm. seeing it, 
And she, he turns that last page, and he's not, the next page is not what he expects. But that's the cool thing, is how did he, he went through the green door to get into the garden, and how did he get out? By turning that page. Mm. Right? There's no sense that suddenly he was whisked out of the garden by, you know, three guards or anything like that. It's when, in turning that page of realities, he is not in the garden anymore. He is suddenly in the gray streets. And that makes me think, it's it's like, is it just a daydream? Because I know the way physics works in our world. If you go through one door and you are on the other side of that door, you don't suddenly end up back on the street, right? That's the way the physics works in our world. So this is not a science fiction story in any normal sense. Um, the That transition is fascinating because it's so subtle that you almost don't even notice that he really, he was one place and then he was in the same place without moving, but it's a different place. And it's not, it's not even like, I'm not, I, I can't remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe how, how they get back to our world. How do they, do they go back through the forest? Yes, they, they do. The, uh, yeah. yeah, they're out riding as grown up kings and queens in the forest and they see the lamp, the lamp post. Oh. And then they get off the horses and go through the, the forest and find the trees turn to coats and they're out the other side of the wardrobe. And how old are they when they come through? Kids. When they go back, they're exactly the same age as they were when they went in. Wow. They can hit, li- live whole lives in there, right? Mm. right? It's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. I, I'm, I'm very intrigued. I, I'm very disappointed in, in the amount of material that's online that's about this story. I, I read through all the Goodread reviews and they were all terrible. You know, <laughs> mostly story summaries and, and when they did venture into, uh, you know, anything like symbolism, it was very weak. So, I, I, I'd like to, you know, go read five or six great essays on this story and then come back and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you should write one. Uh, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. This is very yeah, difficult. Material. I think. I think you need to know a lot more, like the few books that we've touched on that are not this story. But um, I mean, there's the other. The other uh, one that that came to mind is Doctor Who, um, and especially the more modern Doctor Who, which I'm not as big a fan of. But you can almost see it more in this than you can see see it in the old Doctor Who. Is it's about running away. For a time, and having fun adventures where you everything's good and everyone's saved and everybody's happy in their you know camaraderie with a sort of non-sexualized uh, friendship and you know playmates of I don't know Daleks and all that <laughs> stuff, right? Uh, and then you come back to the time where you were and you can just pick up your life as it goes on. I think that was uh, some some episode they had something very much like that where they. They go away and then they come back, and and that that sense of being whisked away to uh, to a fantasy world. It, it, it's you know also Neverland, right? The um, yeah, which we never really mm. touched on before. But yeah. well, things the TARDIS. Very interestingly, um, the concept in the show 
was invented by a fellow, if I remember rightly, was called C.E. Weber. Mm-hmm. And there is, um, fairly recently, they found all these um, production notes and memos and letters back and forth was when they were developing the show. And he came up with the idea of the TARDIS, and he came up with the idea of it as a police box, and he deliberately chose something that was everyday um, and boxy to recall the Narnian wardrobe. And he said, mm-hmm. yeah, basically, the TARDIS is, and I quote, he says, it is our old friend, the dear old magic door. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was very explicitly forged in that tradition of the magic door as, you know, the um, seemingly ordinary thing that if you open it up, you step through, you find yourself on magical adventures. And I'm, I'm fairly sure, thinking about how popular this story has been over the years, that Weber probably had the green door in there in the back of his mind. <laughs> it's, it's a bit heretical to say. Um, it reminds a bit of the holodeck at, at the Enterprise, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can step yeah, in yeah, another well, reality. So mm. that's a science fictiony equivalent, mm. right? Yeah. And sometimes the holodecks um, just lose control. Well, I think I think that that's the the key is holodeck can't be a story unless they lose control. Unless right? they lose the, the, control. Yeah, unless unless mm-hmm. some yeah, that it's got the worst safety record of any <laughs> technological device in the history of the universe. Right? Every time you go in, something bad happens. Um, the thing is, is uh, it has to be that way because the conflict that happens in there has no consequences, right? Yeah. There's no consequences. So to up the stakes, they have to make, oh, the safeties have been turned off again? God damn it. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, it's a some sort of science fiction equivalent. I think it, it's, it's a good one. Um, the only, the only uh, other thing that came to mind, um, and I don't know if it's because of, uh, because of the, um, story of H.G. Wells, the, the, the door in the wall, but there is a movie, uh, called Behind the Green Door, which <laughs> I think is a big surprise. <laughs> right. What do you find behind the green door? Do you know about this movie, Marco? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll read the Wikipedia entry for you. (laughs) Behind the Green Door is a 1972 feature-length pornographic film, widely considered to be one of the genre's quote-unquote classic pictures. It was the first hardcore film widely released in the United States and the first feature-length film uh, directed blah, 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 and starring Marilyn Chambers, who I I believe was a big, uh, made a movie star, or, well, pornographic movie star out of this. Um... It, this and a, I think another one that she's in was it was like sort of the breakout of porno, pornography, but I'm not I haven't seen it, so I can't say whether you know there's a white wall and some guy delivering a pizza opens the door and, and enters uh, an Eden like that. I I have a feeling that that's not it. Have you seen it, Mr. Jim Moon? No, I have um, encountered it though in. Um uh, I saw a documentary a while ago, I think, about the history of pornography, and it mm-hmm. and it mentioned kind of this was saying one of the first hardcore films that actually sort of got proper theatrical release rather than an underground one. And if I remember rightly, the Green Door was the um, door to like a, a private members' club where all these um, excesses 
went on behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's interesting that you know if if he, we see it as he goes through as a five year old boy, right? And a five year old boy's interests are not exactly the same as an adult man's interests. Um, so it's sort of curious, like if he went back through the green door, what would be behind there? Because, um, you know, he wanted playmates and that's what he got. He also, uh, you know, there's a girl there, but it's very, you know, she kisses him. That's it. Right. So the, um, the connection to fantasy is, it'd be curious to know. I, I, I'm sure there's some, but funny. Oh yeah. There is a plot here. Yeah. Uh, two truck drivers tell the story of the green door. Oh, okay. That uh, that other thing that I like about this story is the the um, the narrative narrative is told by the friend, right? This distancing from the original story. It's not the guy confessing; it's him confessing to a friend. So all the reactions that we would have to this story if we were hearing it from him directly are had by the friend. That gives us an extra distance that allows us to appreciate what what what's happening in the story instead of just reacting to it as he's a liar or he's crazy. Yeah, but both both people are um very sophisticated people. Mm-hmm. So this assures that what whatever is told um must be some kind of true. Yeah, that's what it, he comes to. The conclusion, right? It's, a, it's a, either a very vivid hallucination or a special incident. Yeah, this is a common <laughs> the special common incident thing. is not something nothing, right? It's it's something. Yeah, this is a common thing with Lovecraft stories. There are always uh, some sophisticated people telling a story to make sure it's true. Mm. Yes, it gives you that documentary weight, isn't it? Of, um, yeah. mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think for this story, because I think Wells is posing a deliberate mystery and asking, you know, make of it what you will, that giving it in this kind of, as a reported anecdote, that draws you into that process of weighing it up. Because uh, it's essentially one man giving an account of something strange related to him by the man who had the strange experience. Putting it that one remove, it it draws you into that process. Good stuff. Any uh, final thoughts before we close this off? Well, just uh, frivolously throwing another Lovecraft reference. Um, sure. Being a, a Lovecraft buff. Um, when he goes through and um, encounters two panthers that are tame and play with him, I instantly mm-hmm. thought of uh, the elder god Neuralethotep, who, according to Lovecraftian lore, has the same effect on panthers. And I quote, yeah. Wild beasts followed him and licked his palms. <laughs> uh, wasn't there a... Didn't we talk about the crawling chaos? Wasn't there a tiger in that as well? Or was it a tiger? Or? Uh, I think I think that line or a version of it, that appears in the crawling chaos and because the crawling cars eventually was kind of almost rewrote and compressed as uh, mm-hmm. um, Neuralathotep, one of the sonnets in the Fungi from Yugoth, if I'm remembering correctly. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> maybe, maybe that garden's name is Yugoth. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things, I mean, um, something that did strike me reading it now... Um, 
I wasn't as sympathetic towards him when it was revealed he was a politician and a cabinet minister. <laughs> um, when Wells wrote this, such people were respected. Um, now, and particularly currently, they're vilified as scum. <laughs> um. Well, I think I think one way to uh, analyze that would be to say that Wells is Wells is personified by the friend, not by mm. the the other guy, and that's that him criticizing his friend, saying, you know, you haven't been paying attention to this very important social movement. That sounds like Wells to me. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at H.G. Wells's writings, I can't find much evidence that he ever wrote a very sympathetic character at all. None of his none of his characters are particularly nice people, and the ones that are passable, they're just sort of blank. They're, they don't really have a... a um, we don't feel a lot of sympathy for their position. It's more the situation that we care about. And in fact, most of his characters are quite awful, awful people. If you look at the country of the blind, that guy's horrible. Mm. Mm-hmm. The invisible man is a, one of the worst people ever. Right? <laughs> um, I think, uh, I, I think the list goes on and on with very, you know, there's, there's no heroes in his stories. I don't think there's just characters. Mm, I, mean, I think he was very big on the idea of flawed humanity. Uh, I mean, even in like, lighter stories like the flowering of the strange orchid, the, the titular character is actually a bit of an arse, really. Mm. I mean, he's not a, necessarily a bad person, but at the same time, he's he's eccentric to the point of kind of, you know, pull it back, sir, you know, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. get a life. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.